Hey, if you guys can make your way to your seats, we'll get started here. My name is John, in case uh, we have not had the pleasure of meeting. And I want to talk about power tools. Who likes power tools? Some of you. All right. So uh, I have been under the strict tutelage of Pastor Steve Reed when it comes to power tools. As you know, or at least many of you know, Steve is, number one, a tremendous servant. How many of you have been served by Steve? So many people here. And he's not here this morning, so I can say whatever I want about him. Steve is a tremendous ser servant, and he's also a licensed counselor. So when he comes over to your house to serve you with a power tool, he also asks about your feelings. It's kind of a two-for-one thing. It really works out great. Not only does he do that, but he's also tutored me and taught me how to use power tools. So he's been kind of a surrogate dad. So uh, this past weekend, actually, something broke in our house, and I got to fix it using a power tool. And I kind of failed, kind of failed. Uh, don't read into this. It was our bed. And uh, so I drove the screws through the frame of the bed. So we're, they're sticking out about an inch. And so now, so now my wife, as she tries to get into bed, gets bloodied. Yes. So it's a little fail here on my part. But I, I want to survey you guys, and this is uh, purposeful. We have, I have here two of my power tools. I wanted to bring my power washer too, but that was a little difficult. So we have my power drill and my power saw. Now both have different features. The power saw, and this is just me as a man speaking, the power saw makes me feel like a man. You just pull the trigger and it's ring, 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 ring. I mean, you can cut your finger off, but it makes that really cool noise. And so that's its features. The power drill is like really functional. Doesn't sound like it has the same power, but it's really, really functional. You can use it on many things. So I want you guys to vote. You're going to vote here. You've got to cast your vote for one or the other. Which is the most powerful, the best? How many of you would say the power saw? Raise your hand. <laughs> I see you back there. How many would say the power drill? All right. Everyone's wrong. Because um, they're not plugged in. Okay, because they're not plugged in. So follow me here. These tools have been wonderfully designed by engineers. They serve a very precise purpose, and they do so extremely well, but only when they're connected to a power source outside of themselves. Human beings have been created by God, woefully and fearfully made, is the way Psalm 139 puts it. We've been intricately knit together, but God's intention has always been to fill the life of humans, to have a connection with him in such a way that we would experience something that is beyond who we would naturally be. Y'all with me? Pretty cool illustration. Remember that. Look with me at Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. That is, when I heard about the cross, when I heard the good news, when I heard about Jesus my life as I knew it reached like this crossroad. 
and my life ended when I heard about Christ. I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Talk about a power source. Christ lives in me. And I was thinking about this. Isn't that interesting verbiage that Paul uses to describe the Christian experience? Imagine a Christian and a seeker discussing what this means. I could describe this as being receiving forgiveness. I could describe this as in words of salvation or eternal life. But notice what Paul says. His encounter with Jesus is Christ now living in me. Do you see how that elevates it a little bit? Do you see how that is a refusal to dummy down what Jesus has done for us? I can just imagine someone saying, let me see that lived out in your life. And that's what Paul is doing, is that this is a reality. Christ is in me. And I got to thinking, where did Paul come up with this? How did this thought first enter his brain to summarize the Christian experience as Christ in me? And it's found in Jesus' words. John 14. This is right before Jesus went to the cross. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him. And make our home with him. So Jesus, before he went to the cross, was telling his disciples, listen, something's about to change. Once I die and ascend to the Father, there's a new game. I don't want the best of you. I don't want you trying to be righteous in your own effort. The Father and I are going to come and live inside of you. I think that is ridiculously cool. We are, as Jim alluded to, in this series on the book of Galatians. I believe that we are in week five of this series called Transformed by the Gospel of Freedom. Now, we are falling in Like paratroopers on Normandy, we're falling right in the middle of a really hairy situation of a big convoluted argument. So we need to take a few minutes and talk about who Peter was and who Paul was. So interact with me. What do you guys know about Peter? Just shout it out. What do you know about Peter? He was a fisherman. Yes. That's it. That's all we know. He was nicknamed the Rock which is really cool. What, David? He walked on water. He did something amazing. What else? What? He was very, very impulsive. He denied Christ. You look at Peter's life, he has so many great victories like walking on water and so many great failures, epic failures, actually. So let me give you a little review of Peter's life. Here's the first thing. Peter's upbringing, he was brought up Jewish. He was circumcised on the eighth day like any Jew would have been. He was brought up under the Ten Commandments, the Mosaic Law. He would go to the Jewish place of worship, the synagogue, or in the center of all of Israel, the temple. He was brought up as a good Jew and taught, just like the temple taught, 
when any Jew would enter the temple, there was a sign that said, Gentiles enter at risk of death. So racism, which is rampant here today, was not new. It's very, very ancient. And Jew and Gentile hated one another. They had nothing to do with one another. So Peter never went over to some Gentile buddy's house for pork, for example. As a kosher Jew, he would avoid those things. So that's his upbringing, right? Then secondly, Peter meets Jesus. And everything that Jesus taught deconstructed what Peter had known to believe up to that point in his life. When Jesus spoke to Nicodemus, the most religious dude around, and said, you must be born again, Peter's mind would have gone, wait, I thought we were righteous through our observance of the law. When, when Jesus was asked, what work must we do to please God? And Jesus answered, this is the work, to believe in him who he sent. Peter's whole upbringing unraveled with Jesus. Next, Peter and Jesus is the Messiah for the Jews movement. After the death and resurrection of Jesus, the good news about his death and resurrection began to go all throughout Israel to the Jews only. A movement was started of Jews who had been brought up believing in the Jewish Mosaic law and reading scriptures that spoke of a coming Jewish Messiah. Jews reaching Jews. So Peter preaches his first sermon 3,000 people become Christians in one day. Not bad. Not bad at all. And Peter finds him in the middle of this Jesus is the Messiah for the Jews movement. Next, Peter has a dream. You ever had a dream where you wake up in the middle of the night and you're really hot and sweaty? You had too many blankets on and it's like, wow, that was a really funky dream. I had one uh, just a week ago. I didn't tell you this, John Kurtz, my buddy. I dreamt about my friend, John Kurtz. Don't know why, don't remember what you did, but that might be strange for a pastor to tell someone that you were in my dreams, but uh, you were. So Peter has this strange dream. And remember, as a kosher Jew, there are certain things that were unclean that he would never eat like pork. And in this dream, a blanket comes down before him with all kinds of unclean food on it. And a voice says, Peter, kill and eat. He wakes up in a, a sweat, goes back to sleep. The dream repeats. He wakes up a second time. Just then, some Gentiles arrive at his door and they say, come talk to our buddy Cornelius. This is recorded in Acts chapter 10. Peter, for the first time, steps through the threshold of a Gentile door and speaks to non-Jews, Gentiles, just like almost all of us here, and shares the good news about Jesus, and everyone believes and is saved. And Peter's like, whoa, what just happened? Peter goes back to his Jewish friends, and he says, this is wonderful, what just happened? And do you know what their response was? They looked at him and they said, you ate with Gentiles. This Jesus is for the Jews movement was deeply entrenched in their thinking and it began to crack open just a little bit under Peter. 
Then Paul comes along. Paul comes along, and he is a hater of Christians, a persecutor of Christians, until he's converted on the road to Damascus by a blinding light as Jesus himself appears to Paul. And Jesus commissions him as a missionary to Gentiles. And then this whole thing called the kingdom of God breaks open. People like you and me, unchurched people, are hearing for the first time that Jesus was not just the Messiah for the Jews, but for the whole world. Paul goes crazy going from city to city, telling everyone he could find, here's who Jesus is and how he suffered and died and rose again from the dead for the entire world. And thousands, multitudes of people become Christians because of Paul. And Paul has this unique insight that it's not by law, but it's by God's grace. If you are here this morning and you have ever felt your heart beat just a little bit quicker during worship, if you've ever sensed that God has washed away everything I've done, if you've ever felt any excitement about God because of Jesus, it really traces back to this point with Paul understanding that Jesus was for the world. Here's what happens next. There's this big debate because you have Gentiles who have now become Christians and never kept the law. They were not circumcised and have no intention of being circumcised. They have been brought up unchurched, but now they believe in Jesus. And then you have a bunch of Jews who believe in circumcision, have been brought up with the law, and they look over at the Gentiles and they say, Jesus is good, but you really need to add to Jesus. You need Jesus plus. Circumcision, law-keeping, whatever you want to call it. And so the church did this brilliant move. They all got together and they had this meeting. And Peter stands up. Peter, keep that in mind. Peter realizes what the gospel is and he says, it is by grace alone. Paul stands up and says, it is by grace alone. Everyone walks away happy, high fives, hugs, smiles. We're saved by grace, except for the Jesus plus people. They're not really happy with how that meeting went. Next, Peter goes to Paul's hometown church in Antioch. Peter shows up in Paul's church and hangs out with the Gentiles, people that he's never spent time with and hugged and prayed with and seen God's grace upon these unchurched people. And he's thrilled to be there and everything is going great. Everyone is happy. And then mood change, music change. The Jesus plus people show up in Antioch. And Peter forgets the gospel, gets confused about righteousness, reverts back to old Peter, thinking that the law is what makes us right, and he began to withdraw from the Gentiles and to stop hanging out with them. And Paul, who is there at Antioch, watching all of this goes on, and he begins to speak. So we're going to look at Galatians chapter 2. 
verse 14. And right before Paul opens up his mouth to speak, and this is just in my, my mind, okay? This is not in your Bible. This is just my imagination. Once the Jesus plus people have shown up, Peter has stood up and walked away from the table with the Gentiles, and he's over with the Jesus plus people. And to me, it's as if Paul goes over to the Gentile table, pulls out a pulled pork sandwich, begins to munch on it, and then he looks at Peter, and this is what he says. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all. Now, before we go on, let's remember who Cephas, this is Peter, this is another name for Peter. It's an Aramaic, I believe. It's another name for Peter, and Peter is a rock star at this point. Peter is the pastor of a megachurch. This here, what we're in today, H2O, this is what you call a microchurch. Peter was a pastor of a megachurch. He's got thousands of followers. When he tweets, like, people actually read it. Well, he, he has thousands of followers on Instagram. Wildly successful and popular. Paul, though, from the point when he understood the gospel, it's like there's this voice over him, this music that plays over him, this song of freedom, this song of love and peace, and he will not back down no matter what rock star says something different. And so he says, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, because I saw you over at the Gentile table just a little bit ago. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? It's a brilliant argument of the foolishness of beginning your faith journey with grace and then returning to some form of law-keeping. Even though the, no, go back, please. Don't move forward yet. Thank you. Even though this doesn't say this in the Bible, this is shots fired. This is intense. Like, you got to imagine the Gentiles as Paul launches into this. They're like, oh, man, this just got real. Can you imagine if here today we had something like this happen? Let's say that Jim intervened in this sermon and we had an argument right here on the stage. Wouldn't that be awesome? Like you say, yeah, the worship was good, I think. I think Carrie was leading. I don't really remember. But that argument, that was so, it would be driven into your mind. And so Jim's on top of me and pounding me, and Steve's like, how do you feel? How do you feel? That's, I mean, you know, that's what he would say, being the licensed counselor. Yeah, we, yeah, he would, he would be the referee. And I would be like, hand me a power tool. So this is what is going on there. There's this fight breakout. And it is intense and shots are fired. Verse 15, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Now, he's not throwing shade on Gentiles here. What he is saying is he's talking to Peter and he's saying, listen, you and I, we were brought up Jewish. If there's anyone that ha would have a propensity to believe in the law, to believe in self-righteousness, it's us. We weren't brought up on church. We were brought up church. 
We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. We've learned this because the law can, can tell us about our sin, but it can't cleanse us of our sin. The law, when I heard the law for the first time, I understood how dark and dirty my heart actually was. But there was no hope for me changing. The law cannot impart that. But through faith in Jesus Christ, so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. This really helped me because I was not brought up in the church. And so I somehow believed at age 17 that I was somewhat of a good person. I thought, well, I may not be as good as this person, but at least I'm better than that person. And this illustration destroyed my thinking and opened my heart up to receive Christ. The illustration is this. There are two people. One person, their dad is a pastor. Their mom gave birth to them during church while a choir was singing Handel's Messiah just at the perfect point of crescendo. The baby came out of the womb and instantly fell into a baptismal pool and was washed clean. And from that day forth, read the Bible every day and was brought up in the church. They never sinned. They never curse, even on I-4. They do not curse. They've never been drunk. They've never had sex outside of marriage. And that person needs to become born again. The second person, their dad is not a pastor. Their dad is a drunk. And their mom gave birth to them in a bar. And they did not fall into a baptismal pool but onto a table knocking over numerous bottles of beer that had been piled there. They have sworn every time they've been on I-4. Just waiting to see if anyone shows any conviction right now. They have slept with other people so many times and have walked without God their entire life, and both, all of us, need to be justified by faith in Christ alone. And to me, that just opened the door of my heart to understand my personal need of salvation. Verse 17, but if our, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. The argument is this, if we're seeking, we Jews are seeking to be justified by faith alone instead of keeping the law but now we've begun to hang out with gentiles who are unclean breaking the law then hasn't jesus led us into sin and the answer is certainly not next verse for if i rebuild what i have tore down i prove myself to be a transgressor what Paul is saying is that when he understood what Jesus had done for him on the cross, 
he tore down everything he had believed prior to that. It's as if he was building a stairway to heaven through his good works and his religious performance and law-keeping, and he said, no more. I am tearing that down. And so Paul is now reasoning with Peter, saying, if you tear down your upbringing, your law-keeping, and then you revert back to it, you just show how foolish and confused you are. Next verse. For through the law I died to the law so, so that I might live to God. Live to God. Live in the freedom of forgiveness. Living to God is knowing that God is with you, that he's become your heavenly father, that you're washed clean, that God is for you, that he thinks of you, that he's moving in your life, that he's prompting you and leading you and has a home reserved for you. Living for God means freedom. It means joy. It means peace. It means love. And Paul here says, I had to die to the law in order to live to God. In his context, that means I'm done with the Jewish law as the foundation of my righteousness. For us, it might mean I am needing to get off the hamster wheel of performance and thinking I'll ever be good enough for God. I need to stop trying to stack up rocks to reach heaven. I need to, and I want you to notice the word die to that. Paul is really a genius thinker who is actually a little strange at times because of his brilliance. And there is a brilliance that's hidden right under the text that sometimes we miss. What he's saying here about dying to the law is not that I had a relationship with the law and we broke up. We're not Facebook friends anymore. He says, I died to that. I'm done with that. I never again will go back and try to keep the law. In Romans chapter 7, he has this beautiful illustration, which is kind of weird, about marriage. So what he says in Romans 7, he says there that as a man marries a woman and has fruit, as he calls it, which is a coded word for language or for children, it means the man and the woman were intimate and had kids. They had fruit. And in the same way that he was married to the law and had fruit, that is, children of self-righteousness and elitism and comparison and hypocrisy. Law-keeping can only produce unhealthy fruit, not the fruit of love and joy and peace that we were designed for. Next verse. So, he arrives at verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life that I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And I just want to ask us to just dream for a minute. What might it look like in your life if this became the center point, if this became your compass, if on a daily basis you told yourself, 
I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. What might it look like later today as we go on our merry way and we go out to lunch or hang out with friends or with our spouse or whomever, if your center, your motivation, your impulse, what if it was, well, Christ lives in me? Do you see how that might elevate our game? Do you see how that might inspire us to notice people by remembering, by treating Scripture as truthful and reality? Do you see how this can change us if we but embrace what it says? Verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Paul, in his brilliant thinking, tells us that we're actually capable of nullifying God's grace. We can nullify God's grace by thinking that we don't need the cross. I remember talking with a buddy in a student center when he was a college student, and I asked him this hypothetical. I said, if you, let's say you died today and you stood before God. And he said, why should I let you into heaven? How would you answer that? And he said, well, I feel like I'm a good person and I try to keep God's laws. And I'm not always this persnickety, but I looked at him and said, in other words, you don't need the cross. You don't need Jesus. You don't need the death that he died for you. You don't need that. And for some reason, his eyes opened and he understood. I need to receive Christ. I want you to know if you're here today as a seeker that trying to improve yourself will never be what God is after. As Jesus said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, I will come into him. Revelation 3.20. But there's a second way that we can nullify the grace of God as Christians to act as if Christ indwelling is not the center of our power. We can live as Christians as if the cross didn't happen by striving to be better, by working at it, instead of remembering Christ lives in me. I don't know about anyone else here, but my life is full of noise. It's full of static. It's full of all this background clutter. And I found that there's a unreal amount of peace. If I can take the radio of my heart, if I can take the tuning knob and just tweak it a little bit to where it lines up with this truth that Christ lives in me. It's like all the background noise of my life goes away because I've tuned in to the radio dial of the Holy Spirit that Christ lives in me. And I, for one, that's the center of who I am. That's what we're invited to from Paul. Carrie, come on out here. Uh, Carrie and I want to share something with you guys here and lead us into communion. Once I remove these power tools. So, communion is a powerful lesson for us because the cup, the juice, represents the blood of Jesus. 
which was actually really spilled. And the bread represents the body of Jesus, which was really broken on the cross. And so when we take communion, we have this wonderful opportunity to just remember what was done for us. Carrie and I are going to read part of Psalm 32 and just give you a few reflections from it. And then we're going to invite each of us to come to the communion table and to remember Jesus and what he's done and how he connects with our lives today. Psalm 32, verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Um, when I heard this verse, I felt uh, relieved that my sin is covered um, and that I don't have to earn forgiveness. Verse 2. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I heard this for the first time, I was put in awe that God would say, I am not going to count your sin against you. But I also felt invited. I don't need to be deceiving. I don't need to cover up. I don't need to make myself better than I really am because if God forgives me, I am invited to be transparent and authentic and honest. Verse 3. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Uh, strangely, this verse made me think about when I was a kid and uh, I would maybe break something around the house or something like that where I didn't want to tell my parents and uh, a day or two would go by and it would eat away at me and eventually I would just tell them verse 4 for day and night your hand was heavy upon me my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer this actually reminds me of the 24 hours between when I first heard about Jesus and when I yielded my life to him. His hand was heavy upon me because I knew I am guilty. I am, I am sinful. And it's just like the heat of summer here in Orlando. My strength was, was gone until I received the forgiveness of Christ and felt revived in my spirit, washed clean. Verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Um. So going back to when you're a kid and you finally tell your parents uh, what you did, um, turns out they already knew what you did. <laughs> they just wanted you to tell them. Um, all we have to do is confess and we're forgiven. It just reminded me of when my daughter 
wrote her name on our bathroom wall, Emily. And I looked at her and I said, did you do this? And at first she said, no. And then she said, am I lying? <laughs> yes. Verse 6, therefore let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. I think what this verse is really saying is that God knows our hearts. And if we choose to live our lives without God and then in a panic, we cry out to him, we may not find him. We need to respond to him when he's moving in our life, like maybe today. Verse 7, for you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Um, later on, we're playing um, No Longer Slaves, and there's a part in the recording where the singer spontaneously starts singing this part, and I don't know if it's from this verse or not, but it reminded me of it. Um, it says, I am surrounded by the arms of the Father. I am surrounded by songs of deliverance. We've been liberated from our bondage. We are the sons and the daughters. Let us sing our freedom. Carrie and I, as we were talking about this, we were talking about how unbelievable it is. If you picture God over you, not with shouts of anger, not with shouts of disappointment, but somehow through his grace, he moves toward us and invites us into relationship with him through Jesus. And then the shout of deliverance from God, from that monstrously big heart of grace of God. It's really incomprehensible. This morning we thought be nice if as we approach the communion table if we would take the cup and take the bread go back to your seat and then whenever you want to between you and God take communion and remember what he's done for you and acknowledge your sin and remember the shout of deliverance and freedom and grace that is offered us through Jesus. So I'd like to pray for us. Can you guys stand and we're going to move into worship? Again, we invite you to the communion table. As soon as we begin to sing, you can move forward there. Great God, we thank you for this gift that is indescribable. How can our hearts fathom a God that would love people who have lived without him? How is it, Lord, that you 
are compelled to move toward us. How is it that you have a shout of joy over us? We do not know the answer to that, but we can say back to you, there's no other place I'd rather be than under the cross of Jesus. Looking up in awe and wonder at who you revealed yourself to be. We thank you for your love. We thank you for forgiveness. We thank you that you invite us into true transformation here at the cross. We come now to worship you in the great name of Jesus.